Hello, Christ Chapel. Good morning. It is good to see you today. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in song and, of course, in submission to his word as well. A very countercultural, increasingly countercultural activity that we're engaging in this morning. Uh, but uh, as Malcolm Mugridge, uh, a yesteryear's journalist, commentator, and Christian said, it, it's only dead fish that swim with the stream. We want to go against the currents of society if they're going against our Lord Jesus Christ. So meeting in a place like this to, to sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ, to gather around his word as his people is countercultural. Bring it on. It's good and it's godly. And it's essential. It's essential to what God wants to do in your life, to what God wants to do in our lives, so that we can be the people of God and represent him well in this generation as well. So today I want to talk to you about that from Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to show you what I'm pretty confident you already buy into, but I want to show you it from the Scriptures. I want to show you that it has historical and biblical precedent, what we're doing here today, singing and standing and hearing the Word of God opened up before us. Three essentials that I want you to see, three essentials to any faithful church so that a church can represent God in the society in which it lives. Three building blocks, as it were, or three tools in the hand of the Holy Spirit for the 21st century church from God's people way back in the 5th century. Essentials are extremely important. As I reflected upon some of the issues that I was uh, reading this week as it relates to God's Word, it took me back to a man of God called Dr. Toussaint. He's with the Lord today, but I was thanking the Lord for this man's impact upon my life as he opened up the Word of God. One of the things that came to mind as I reflected upon him was his, his love for telling a few jokes. And the Lord brought to mind one that, that I believe is very, very appropriate. It concerns this lady who was feeling very, very lonely. And so she went to the pet store to buy a parrot so she could talk to, so the parrot could talk to her. And so she bought this parrot and she took it home. And a few days later, she came back to the store quite angry. This parrot doesn't talk. And the store owner said, well, that's a little interesting. You know what that parrot needs? That parrot needs a mirror. It needs to look at itself in the mirror, and then it'll talk away. So she bought the mirror, and she installed it in the birdcage. But nothing, no chat, nothing from the parrot. So the next day, she went back and said to the store owner, still not talking, she says, well, that's very, very peculiar. Maybe what your parrot needs is a swing. Parrots love swings. And a happy parrot will be a chatty parrot. Get him a swing. She got him to swing and installed it in the cage, but nothing. No conversation from this parrot. So she went back to the store. And again, the man thought it was very, very strange. He said, you know what your parrot needs? Not just a mirror, not just a swing, but he needs a ladder. He needs to climb up and down a ladder. Once he climbs up and down a ladder, he's going to talk the ear off you. So she bought a ladder and she installed it in the cage. And nothing again. She went back to the store owner, and, and, and the store owner saw that she was a little mad at him, and he said, you know, what's up? Did, did the parrot not talk? And she said, no, the parrot died. The parrot died. He said, really? Well, what, did he ever say anything? She said, yes, 
just as he was about to close his little eyes, he said this, don't they sell the essentials like food in that pet store? I love it, Dr. Toussaint always had a little way of helping us remember uh, the truths that he was trying to teach and, and this little part essentially makes a Nehemiah 8 point. There are some essentials, there are some basics that you and I need to partake of like what we're doing today so that we thrive, so that we don't deteriorate and collapse, so that they sustain us. So let me show you three essentials in Nehemiah chapter eight this morning that sustain God's people according to God's word. And he gave it to God's people back then and it's still relevant for us today. The first essential for any faithful church in any generation to rebuild society, to rebuild God's will, to rebuild God's will God's way is really the basics of God's book, the Word of God. I know you know that. It's, it's basic, but it's essential. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8 with me. It says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. That's around 30,000 people, we believe. And they come together at this public square, and, and they say this, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book. Bring the book of the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel, bring the book, bring, bring God's book. This is a people of God who have just rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. We've studied that over the last several months, really, from chapters 1 all the way through to chapter 6 and into 7. The, the walls are up and the gates are hung and God's reputation is now ready to be proclaimed to the world. But, you see, those walls were down not because God was powerless or because uh, the walls were put up wrongly in the first place. Those walls were put down because God's people weren't walking well with God. That's what brought those walls down 140 years earlier. They deviated from God's book that walked away from God's truth. So here we have them now as if learning from history, and you can sense the passion in their request. Talk to us from there. Talk to us from what God has put to paper. Bring the living voice of the living God to our attention. We want to rebuild our society, not with the security of some walls and some gates, but because of our intimacy and our walk with a great God. Bring the book. Bring God's book. This is a righteous request. This is a wonderful request. And they had alternative options on the truth market of their day also. They didn't get their weird truths from social media uh, and Twitter uh, quotes and, I don't know, professors in liberal schools, but, but they had their wacky self-proclaimed gurus spewing out nonsense in their day also. Read the scriptures. Some of the stuff going on in and around the society in which God's people lived are weird and attractive. But these people now know that society must be rebuilt 
on God's book and what God said, what the Lord commanded, verse 1 says, and so they call for it. That's important in my opinion that, that you get infected with that same righteous request. See, you're maybe not aware of it, but the society in which we live in, the age in which we live in, is referred to as the postmodern age. It's been referred to that way since the 1960s. And, and I know you didn't vote for it. You didn't want to build it, but, but it's where you live. It's what is around you. It's what's infected you. And a postmodern society has now become a post-truth society where truth is not something that, that is fixed and that is anchored and that is out there that, that I receive and that is revealed to me and that I align my life toward. It's not, it's not absolute. Truth is fluid. Truth is, is relative. Truth is something that I build for myself and that you get to build for yourself also. And the clown that lives next door, whacking and spewing off nonsense, I have to listen to his truth also. It's why fluidity in everything is, is fashionable, right? It, it allows a worldview that essentially allows me to have my truth, and I can change it whenever I want. It's why it's possible to live in a society where where, where people are constantly offended. You see, your truth is stepping on my truth, and I don't like that because my truth is important. It's how I feel. It's why you have a society where there's no real concept of what's wrong. To call something wrong is to infringe upon somebody else's truth. Why would you do that? It's why things like an equality act with all those tentacles there find a hearing in this society. It's the age in which we live. It's, it's postmodern, post-truth. 2016, word of the year in Oxford Dictionaries was post-truth. A society that gauges truth not so much as something that's out there, but something that's in here, based more on feelings than on facts. It's why Malcolm Mudridge, the chap I mentioned earlier, British journalist who became a Christian, anticipated this for our society when he said that Western society has educated itself into imbecility. And Western society has polluted and drugged itself into stupefaction. Western society will one day keel over like a weary and a battered old brontosaurus and become extinct. That's the trajectory that he saw that type of a society heading on. Friends, those exiles, having lived through what they lived through, and having begun to study God's interaction with their ancestors, they began to realize that a society is only successful if it's godly. And a society cannot be godly unless it's based on the truth of God's book. So bring that book. Bring us God's book. This book, uh, God uses it to change the world. Bestseller. It's not on the list of bestsellers because it's so far ahead of every other book. Martin Luther, you know the great reformer, uh, really the Reformation was a back to the Bible movement. 
Well, he was hearing news of his own popularity and and people who were beginning to follow Christ according to the teachings of the scriptures were beginning to refer themselves according to Luther's name. And he didn't like that. And look what he said. He said, what is Luther? The teaching isn't mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing, and and while I slept, and while I drank Wittenberg beer, Wittenberg's a place in Germany where he lived, while I drank Wittenberg beer with my pals, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, Luther says. The word of God did everything. God uses this book to change society, and God still uses his word to change society. Now, this book doesn't answer everything that we want to know. I was walking past the the kitchen table the other day in our home, and my wife was there with some of the kids. Uh, They were talking about the Bible, and I heard my son Jake, who's about nine, say say to his mom, Mom, was Matthew, you know Matthew in the Bible, Was Matthew a Democrat or a Republican? (laughs) I did what you did. I laughed and I walked on by. (laughs) Like I have to not answer enough wacky questions, right? This one she had to handle. The Bible doesn't answer everything, but it is sufficient. It is essential that we rally around it on a regular basis so that we stand on God's truth. You and I have an incredible capacity to drag in here all sorts of semi-truths, falsehoods, my-truths, wrongful tendencies that we pick up in society all week. Like my dog, when it comes in from the backyard, there's all sorts of rubbish on its fur. We come in here and we need to be bathed. We need to be bathed in God's word. That's what we're doing here this morning. It is an essential. John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, I mean, if there's one guy whose hand I want to shake when I come into the presence of the Lord, it's John Bunyan's. What a man. Read Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in 1678 and it has never been out of print. It's been translated into 200 different languages. Genius. What a man of God. You know what was said of John Bunyan? That if you cut him, he would bleed the scriptures. He's a man of the book. He's a man who called for God's book every day in his life. The first essential, my friends, for any faithful church to rally around is God's book. A faithful church calls for God's book. A faithful church builds its life and rebuilds itself and society anchored on God's word. That's the first one. Let me show you the second one that emerges here in in Nehemiah 8, the second essential to a faithful church. No matter what generation it's in, to rebuild God's will, God's way is essentially God's pulpit preaching pastor. It's an interesting one for me to preach this morning, right? But it's there. And it's part of our weekly ritual here, right? And it has been, not just for 40, 50 years around here, but for millennia. 
Look at verses four and five and eight. I'm going to read a little selectively here. Verse four a, and Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Skip to verse five. He mentions a few names there at the end of verse four. Verse five, and Ezra opened up the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people as he opened it and all the people stood. And then just jot down to verse eight. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Two things I want you to see very, very quickly there. Number one, pulpit preaching. Number two, uh, the preaching pastor, the teaching pastor. You know, one of the other things that a postmodern, post-truth society dislikes, pulpit preaching and a preaching pastor. Uh, Unless it's the ear-tickling version that the Apostle Paul warns against in 2 Timothy 4. Uh, postmodern, uh, post-truth society is, is, is suspicious of authority, dislikes authority. This is not, again, my fanciful opinion because of an ax to grind. Read the experts on postmodernism. They will tell you. A postmodern society says yes to authenticity, no to authority, no way. It's repulsive for you to impose your truth upon me. It makes sense according to their flawed worldview. The idea of submitting to an ancient book's truth that is opened up by a guy standing in front of us and supposedly over over us is appalling. appalling. It's it's abhorrent. It's deemed preachy. Right? To be preaching now is a bad thing, it seems. Or, you know, he preaches at me. Or he's very preachy. And yet, it's what the Apostle Paul calls Timothy to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Well, here we have a big, massive wooden structure that's built. It's actually not just a platform. It's a tar, a wooden tar and my imagination goes wild. I, 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 so I think that they built it from the remnants of Noah's Ark. Just the real good thick wood with a history. Here we have a massive pulpit that is erected for Ezra to preach on and to pound as he tries to open up God's word to God's people, to call them to align their lives to God's truth, to God's way to what God would have them do as they rebuild their future. Pulpit preaching is a timeless tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit. What we do here every week is an act of what we call sanctification, where the Holy Spirit uses his word through his servant to chip away at those things that shouldn't be there so that we become more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ to bathe us, to wash us in light of all the junk that we drag in from society. It's a a millennia-old tool that's fallen on very hard ground, and, and it's a good tool. It's a godly tool, despite what the 21st century says about it. God says that it is useful, 
for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And so pulpit preaching should be uplifting. You should be reminded of God's wonderful truth and the hope that is yours because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our future is bright. God's promises are fantastic. It should uplift you, but sometimes it should unsettle you. And it should make you a little bit uncomfortable. And sometimes perhaps it might even upset you. But it's good for you according to God's word. But this isn't just any guy who's getting up to pound the pulpit, right, and preach. This is a, a pulpiteer. This is Ezra. If you look at it, study uh, the chapter. This is Ezra coming on to the scene. He hasn't been on the scene in the book of Nehemiah. It's all been God's superman, Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah is the, the wine connoisseur. Nehemiah is the bodyguard. Nehemiah is the architect. Nehemiah is the engineer. Nehemiah is the administrator. Nehemiah is the CEO, as it were. But Nehemiah steps aside at this point. Nehemiah knows that somebody else has been prepared by God to rebuild God's people in the word of God now that the walls are up and that the gates are hung. And so Ezra steps up, and he's a shepherd of souls who knows how to feed God's sheep the word of God, which is what they need. Ezra is a godly man. He has been shaped by God. He has been formed by God. He has been slow-cooked, not microwaved, ovened by God. If you, at some point, read the book of Ezra in chapter 7, you get a little bit of an insight into him. In verse 10, a very, very well-known verse in there, it says that Ezra had set his heart upon the study of God's word and, and to practically apply it to his life and then to pass it on, to preach, to teach it to others. This is a man who has been prepared by God. He's a man of the book who's been prepared in the book He's been slow cooked by God, with God, in God's word, for God's people. So he gets up and he stands on this massive, authoritative, wooden pulpit. And he exposits God's word for God's people. He's an expert. That's who you want in your pulpits, right? Ezra-like shepherds. That's what, that's what America needs. Men of God trained, set apart, and devoted to the study of God's word and to live it out and to be able to pass it on to others. Isn't that what you'd expect from your heart surgeon if you're going into heart surgery? Someone who's taken time to, to set his life aside, to be prepared in that so that he can be practiced and groomed in that so that when he cuts you up, he knows what he's doing. Why would it be any different for God's people? Ezra is God's man of the moment here, a pulpit preaching pastor to pound the pulpit to call God's people to a better future. It's beautiful. The church needs Ezra-type preaching pastors, my friend. We're slipping in, in the U.S., I see it, and it pains me to say it, but we're slipping a little bit because we're buying into this craze for drive-through degrees in education. 
that puts people uh, into positions that they were never trained to handle, but now they can do it with degrees behind them that weren't built for that purpose. It's why one leader of the church who, who I appreciate has said this, that the church is in running the risk of falling into the hands of entrepreneurs, not expositors, of, of entertainers and marketers with golden tongues but weak in the word. Dr. Toussaint, my friend that I mentioned earlier, he was an Israelite pastor. Boy, the impact he had. He, I remember him saying this, man, you don't sit above the word of God as though you're more enlightened. And man, you don't sit alongside of the word of God as though you're an equal. No, you sit under the word of God. That's where you sit under the word of God. It is godly to submit to godly pulpit preaching. I never forgot that. God's used this to shape my life. So the second essential for any faithful church in any generation to rebuild God's will, to rebuild God's will God's way is God's pulpit preaching. A faithful church sits under the pulpit preaching of God's word, not by anyone, but by God's formed shepherd, slow cooked by God, with God, in the word of God, for God's people. Now look at the third essential, because this is very important for you. It relates to God's people. The third essential is God's people. Uh, five responsibilities, I believe, emerge in Nehemiah 8 that you need to be aware of. Uh, let me read uh, some verses that we've read already. Verse 1 again. And the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They gathered. It's as basic as that. They assembled is what the word means. God wants his people to come together, to gather, to assemble. That's why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25, God says, do not neglect the assembling as some are in the habit of doing. Now, I know you might not be getting mad at me, but those who are watching online might be getting a little mad at me at this point. So settle yourselves. Grab another little gulp of your coffee. There is an understandable season of separation and distancing that we're in at the minute. There's no doubt about that. We want health safety. We want that. But when it is safe to do so, and if you are physically able to do so, it is a wonderfully good habit, according to God's word, to gather with God's people. To gather with God's people. There's a, there, there will be times when there are legitimate reasons for you not to gather with God's people, but your, your personal vows to wear PJs all day on a Sunday is not a legitimate reason. God wants us to assemble. In fact, the very word church means gathering, means assembling. So, so these people assembled, verse 1, they came together. That's number one uh, in the responsibilities before them. They also, look at the rest of verse 1, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now what I want you to see is that it's the people who call for the book to be brought. God's people are the ones who demand that God's pulpit-preaching pastors bring that book. Talk to us about what God says there. It's your responsibility to hold this church accountable 
to what's preached from this pulpit. I submit that you should leave, you know, the singing and the seating and the masking and the distancing as decisions that your leaders make, but you hold them accountable to bringing this book. That's your responsibility. These people gathered and they called for God's book to be opened up. Look at verse three again. You, you see responsibilities three and four packed in there. And he, that is Ezra, read from it, that's the Bible, uh, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's six hours of preaching, my friends. You're getting off lightly. I'm getting off lightly. But these people, you see, have an appetite for God's word. They're hungry for it. They're hungry for God's word. And the challenge to you is, are you actually hungry for God's word? And you know, verse 13 and verse 18 tells us that they came back the next day. And they came back the next day. This, this becomes a Bible conference kind of week. So they gathered from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Responsibility number four, to be attentive, to be, to be readied for the preaching of God. Your responsibility is not to show up here resistant and half sleepy and distracted and ready to spectate as if you're watching the Dallas Cowboys on TV. Your responsibility is to come here ready to hear, not from me, not from Cody, ready to hear from a holy and almighty and unrivaled God who has some words for you this week, who wants you to listen to what it is he has to say so you would go out and represent him in the world well. I'm responsible for expository preaching. You're responsible for expository listening. And that's not passive. You come readied to hear God's word. As Jesus said, you come with ears to hear and eyes to see. I was preaching in California uh, just last week. And as I was re getting ready to go up to the second, uh, in the second service, there was a man a few rows behind me. And he was praising God so loudly and so unapologetically that it brought tears to my face, my eyes. I think his breath was what propelled me up to the pulpit, perhaps prematurely. This is a man who came ready to hear from God, ready to worship God. This is a man who understood the importance of this weekly gathering to his life. So they assembled and they asked for the book and they had an appetite to hear God's word and they were attentive to the exposition of the word of God. And fifthly, they applied it to their lives. Look at verses 9 and 10, albeit the rest of the chapter elaborates upon this also. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, that is the pastor and Bible teacher, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn, do not weep. Why would he say that? Well, because the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is, this is godly grief. This is, this is good guilt. This is remorse because they're coming into the realization of what God says, God's truth. 
God grabs their hearts. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way. It's, it's, I love it. It's like Ezra saying, now get out of here. Go and live for God. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Celebrate God. Worship God even in your eating. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Reach out to those around you. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. These people applied God's word to their lives. They wept when God grabbed their hearts, and they worshiped because God grabbed their hearts, and they went out to live different lives because God grabbed their heart. When God, when the word of God that God wrote is opened up before God's people. The Spirit of God says, I wrote that, and I want you to live that for me. It's beautiful. They applied. When, I, uh, when my parents came back from Spain, they were missionaries in Spain there for a long, long time, my dad took up a little church in a very rough area of Belfast, and uh, I remember preaching there several times, sort of cut my teeth there preaching, as did Pastor Cody. He spent a summer there with my dad too. And there was a little sign that hung at the back of the main auditorium. It was a little room. And you would only see the sign when you were leaving the service because it, it hung just above the entrance, the doorway. So it's only when you turned to leave that you'd see it. And it said this, remember, you are now entering a mission field. I love that. God's people spend time here, feasting on God's word with God's chosen servants so that they go out and live different lives for him. Third essential for any faithful church in any generation to rebuild God's will, God's way, concerns your responsibilities as God's people. A faithful church gathers ready to receive God's word and ready to live out God's word in the world. That's your responsibility. In the 1800s, a French diplomat visited the U.S. and he traveled across the U.S. and he wrote concerning his travels. And here's what he says, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors and in her ample rivers, but it wasn't there. And I sought for the greatness of America in her vast fields and her boundless forests, but it wasn't there. I, I sought it in her rich mines and in her vast world commerce, and it wasn't there. I sought it in her democratic congress and in her matchless constitution, but it wasn't there. It wasn't until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I realized and I understood the secret of America's greatness. America is great, he says, because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she'll cease to be great. This society can be good again. But only if it's built God's way. And God's way historically and biblically has included three key essentials that you and I get to regularly engage in, regardless of how countercultural they seem to the 21st century postmodern world. 
gather around God's book for good godly expository preaching and good godly expository listening. Then we'll not be like the dead fish that just follow the stream. Then we'll not be like that poor little parrot who missed out on some of the essentials that would sustain his life. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the fact that we regularly have the freedom to gather together as your people in the 21st century and open up your word and hear its call upon our lives. I pray that your people will have heard your word well today, that your word that's gone out will fall on good soil, that will produce fruit in their lives to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.